1: Thanks for joining us on another episode of New Books in Global Conflict. I'm your host, Amarnath Amarasingham. Today we're joined by Michael Cook, author of Ancient Religions, Modern Politics The Islamic Case in Comparative Perspective, published by Princeton University Press in 2014. Dr. Cook is a widely respected historian and scholar of Islam, and he begins his book with the question that everyone seems to be asking Is Islam uniquely violent or uniquely political? Why does Islam seem to play a larger role in contemporary politics than other religions? The answers that are provided for these questions, particularly in the media, range from the ludicrous to the Islamophobic. Cook, on the other hand, uh, embarks on a much more nuanced and learned attempt at answering the question. His book rightly begins with the assumption that if there is something unique about Islam in this regard, the uniqueness of it can only be understood through comparative study of other religions and their engagement with politics. Cook looks at Hinduism and Christianity's involvement in modern political life and places them alongside Islam, delving deeper into issues of political identity, warfare, and social values. What he finds is interesting and goes to the heart of almost every debate taking place in a wide variety of fields like religious studies and the sociology of religion. Listen as we talk with him about his book about contemporary global politics, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, as well as his fascinating future projects. Dr. Michael Cook, thanks for joining us today. Um, I guess that uh, one, one of the first questions I have uh, about
2: your book is um, maybe I mean, or maybe you can start by telling us a bit about yourself and uh, where you went to school and, and um, how you first became interested in religion and uh, religion and, and the history of the uh, history of religions.
3: Right now, there's one quick question I have to ask you here, and that is: Are you using school in a British or an American sense? In American
2: sense. Uh, in the American sense.
3: Okay, right. In that case, I start with Cambridge, not with nursery school. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I I went to Cambridge. I mean, the real Cambridge in England. Uh And uh, I did a combination of things there. The first two years, I did history. And the second two years, I did what was then called Oriental Studies, Uh uh, learning Persian and Turkish. And this was actually, it may sound a bit of a weird combination, but uh, it was something I planned well in advance. And I had the idea that I wanted to learn how to be a historian, but that uh, if I tried to apply those skills in, say, English or European history, um, you know, the scene would just be much too crowded, too many other people doing the same thing. Whereas if I was to move to Islamic history, there would be wide open spaces and, That, I think, is probably the single most rational decision I've ever made.
2: (laughs) So there was no major um, competition at the time as we have today. I mean, I guess post 9-11 and uh, even the second half of the 20th century, there was much more interest in Islam in that sense.
3: I think that's right. I mean, a couple of years back, uh, I was on a committee to decide the best Middle Eastern book of the year. Mm -hmm. And we got a set of something like 80 volumes that are sitting up on a shelf in my office here.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, No, I mean, it just was not like that when I started out. Mm
2: -hmm. And when did you, uh, this is your PhD you're talking about in Cambridge?
3: Um, No, it's not. No, no, I mean, that that was my undergraduate degree. Uh, I then went to London to the School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, and I worked on a PhD which I never actually completed, I just published it.
2: Mm -hmm. And you finished your PhD uh, at SOAS, or...? Right.
3: I mean, I mean, that was when I did all the PhD research that I did. Oh, okay.
2: And so what was your uh, initial research on for, the, for, your, uh, for your doctoral study? Okay, it
3: was about uh, population pressure in certain select uh, regions of, uh, and what's now Turkey, uh, in the later 15th and 16th centuries. Mm-hmm. So it was a very long way from anything to do with religion.
2: Yeah. So when did you make the shift towards more um, history of religions and those kinds of?
3: Well, that actually happened, uh, yeah, quite a long time later, and it was when uh, Albert Furani, who was a very uh, sort of distinguished scholar uh, in the study of the modern Middle East and also a great patron of younger scholars, mm. uh, he was going. He was in Oxford, at Oxford, and he was going on leave, and he called me in he asked me if I would uh, come during the year he was on leave and give his usual course of lectures on sort of, uh, I think the first few centuries of Islamic history. And I didn't know anything about those centuries, so I thought it was a good chance to learn something. And uh, you know, very soon after I started, I became hooked by the way in which the central role played by religion in the, for- in the formation of the Islamic world of this massive Arab empire, and also of Islamic civilization. Right.
2: And uh, when when did you first start thinking about uh, this book in particular? That just came out this uh, this year, called "Ancient Religions, Modern Politics."
3: Right. Well, I'm afraid that's very predictable. You probably guessed already. 9/11 happened. Right. And uh, must have been the the spring semester after that. Uh, me and a colleague of mine got together. Uh, he he was a modernist. Uh, I was a medievalist, and we got together to put uh, to put together a course mm-hmm. that would provide the undergraduates here with background on nine eleven, as it were, uh, what there had been before it that it could come out of. And uh, he was responsible for the dirty politics, and I was responsible for the sort of the grander tradition going back into the Middle Ages. And in the course of that, um, while we were teaching that course, I gave one lecture in which uh, I tried to do a comparison between the political role of Islam and the political roles of Hinduism and Catholicism in Latin America. In other words, it was a kind of preview of the book, although at that stage I knew very little about either the Hindu or the Latin American case. So that I, I hate to think what I may have said then, but then luckily it's not recorded.
2: Um, so what is the, I guess, question you were trying to answer in the course or, uh, and in the book in particular? And what is, the, what is the question you were trying to get across to the, the class at the time for undergraduates?
3: Right. I mean, the central point I wanted to make in that lecture was that uh, the relationship between Islam and politics today is just much stronger, it's much more salient than the relationship between, say, Hinduism and Indian politics or Catholicism and Latin American politics. I mean, you know, anywhere you have religion, it's going to seep into politics one way or another. uh, No question about that. But, I mean, it does so, it's much more than just seepage uh, in the Islamic case. Not that, not, I honestly think that, um, well, I think it's actually sort of pretty obvious if you just follow the news mm-hmm. that um, Islam just is much more salient in modern politics than any other religion, or certainly any other major religion. Um, and that then immediately triggers the question, why should that be so? And that's the question I was trying to answer back then in that lecture, and trying again at greater length to answer in that book.
2: So before we get into the answers, I guess, I, I do want to ask a little bit about methodology um, in terms of, you know, how you approach writing uh, these kinds of books as a historian. Um, I, I don't imagine you do much, many interviews or qualitative research of that kind, or, or uh, I mean, what are your sources and where do you turn to uh, for your material?
3: Right. Now, um, I mean, initially, when I heard you say the word methodology, I was a bit scared because in... <laughs> As I once said to, to some American graduate students, and I think it rather shocked them, I said, you know, I don't have a methodology, I'm British. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the way you unpack the question is more about the kind of sources. And yes, um, I have not done interviewing. Um, as a medievalist, I'm not in the habit of interviewing because, you know, the people, <laughs> it's too late. Um, and I didn't develop that skill for the purpose of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also did not do a really enormous amount of work on, say, jihadi websites or whatever. Um, you know, there are other people who are much more expert at handling that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So what I did basically was just to sort of sit down and do a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it's secondary sources, modern you know, contemporary studies. Some of it's uh, primary sources and you know, medieval or modern texts written by people with commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, basically, um, Yeah, I mean, it's a book based on reading.
0: Yeah.
2: And so what, what, why the comparative approach uh, to this? Because, you, you know, you have sections on uh, Catholicism in Latin America and Hinduism in India and, and, and the way they approach different issues. But but why not, uh, why not just a book on Islam?
3: Right, I think because um, if I had just written a book on Islam, I'd have been asking people to take my word for it that Islam is much more salient than other religions. I mean, I actually wanted them... Um, I mean, it's a conclusion that, as I said, I think is actually pretty obvious, but, I mean, it's not one that everybody accepts, and I therefore felt it would be a good idea to actually sort of set out a basis for that, not so much conclusion as sort of, you know, a starting point of the book. Uh, that's one thing. Then the other thing is, of course, I mean, if you're trying to... Uh, get some amount of causality into your analysis um, and you, you want to come up with ideas about why Islam is more salient than those other religions, you've got to look at Islam and at those other religions and try to compare them and try to sort of tease out some kind of cause and effect there.
2: So I I mean, I'll just quote a little bit from your process here, um, and then maybe you can help uh, the listeners unpack. Um, So you say, my main argument is that the three traditions offer significantly different combinations of assets and liabilities for those engaged in modern politics, and that this makes them variously attractive or unattractive to such actors as political resources. So what what, what does that mean?
3: (laughs) Right, yes, and that is a rather sort of um, tightly packed sentence. And what I'm saying is that you can think of um, a religious tradition and you can think of it as many different things for many different purposes. But uh, if you're thinking of it from the point of view of politicians going to work in a society which uh, believes in that particular heritage, then there are likely to be some things in the tradition that you really want to grab hold of for your political mobilization purposes, and other things that you might want to steer clear of or that do nothing for you. And obviously religious traditions, um, I mean, they may have some things ultimately in common, but uh, they do differ very widely. So um, um, to my kind of common sense thinking, uh, it stood to reason that uh, different heritages would have different degrees of usefulness or attractiveness, two people uh, engaged in political activity
2: and uh, is that um, is that modern is there something peculiar about modern politics that um, also makes certain aspects of islam more attractive or is it have you found that um, basically politics at any period in history has been uh, attracted to certain uh principles in islam
3: Right. I mean, certainly, yes. I mean, um, there has not been any period in which Islam has been politically irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But I suppose that, um, I mean, the the Muslim experience of modern history uh, makes this relevance more acute, Um, in the sense, I mean, it's an experience that has two big downsides to it. Um, One in the 19th century, well, late 18th and then into the 19th century, into the Early 20th century was the extension of European colonial rule or imperial rule over large parts of the Islamic world. Something that had that Muslims had only experienced on a very small scale in previous centuries. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that that's um, a rude shock to the system. And the other is the fact that, um, I
0: mean
3: the military power of the West wasn't just military power, as, say, the military power of the Mongols in the 13th century. In the 13th century, if the Mongols came and conquered you, uh, you had to think hard what to do about that. But you didn't have to think about Mo- Mongol civilization, Mongol culture, what things you should adopt from it. Uh, because, basically, you know, all the Mongols had was this uh, extraordinary military uh, successfulness. Yeah. Whereas, um, under modern conditions... And you've got to start looking at the French or the British or whoever it is and figuring out what aspects of their culture you need to adopt if you are going to be viable again you know, in a world that contains those guys. And uh, you know, the process of um, you know, trashing parts of your ancestral tradition, and replacing it with something from a foreign source, mm-hmm. is a kind of undignified process. It's not something that people inherently like. So again, I mean, I think there's kind of a stimulation there to the salience of Islam.
2: I mean, if, if you look at um, Ibn Taymiyyah's writings, I guess, against um, the invaders at the time, and then uh, the, the kind of modern-day modern, modern day jihadis and the way they cite Ibn Taymiyyah, um, it, it, uh, do they recognize that it's a different context? Or what, what is the mechanism by which they think they can just take... Uh, uh, a certain uh, view from that period and apply it equally well today.
3: Right. I think, I mean, the fundamental... Yeah, I mean, no, the, the primary thing that they're getting from Ibn Taymiyyah, or certainly the most sharp-edged thing,
0: mm-hmm.
3: is his denunciation of the Mongols for having a legal code that is not Islamic law. Right. Um, now, I mean, that is something which... Um, I mean, even Camier, yes, is in a, he's living in a specific context and talking about a specific context. But in a sense, I mean, the truths he is invoking are or look like they're timeless, and um, that there cannot be any other kind of law alongside God's law. And I mean, if that was true in the 13th century, then it's, it has to be true in the 21st century. So I think I mean, it's extremely easy, and it's very straightforward for the, uh, you know, for fairly extreme Islamists to lift that out of Ibn Taymiyyah and apply it in our time. Because mm-hmm.
2: they see, because uh, c- the kind of broader themes are very similar, or the broader activities are very similar. Sorry? So, so the broader occurrences are, are, are kind of similar, or the response to those...
3: Yeah, I, think that, very... I mean, at a certain level, uh, it's very similar. The level being that you have... Uh, Infidels who arrive with a non-Islamic legal code and who then start uh, ruling by it, I mean, that applies to the Mongols, it applies to the British and the French. Obviously, yes, in many respects it's very different, but they have that much in common, Mm -hmm. and that's all they need.
2: I mean getting uh, I guess going a little deeper into the book and in, uh, in your different uh, it's, it's divided into three parts and I was wondering you know can you just kind of unpack the different parts of the book so in part one you discuss things like identity and uh, national identity and ethnicity and, and so where, where do you see the importance um, of these concepts for your for your broader argument
3: okay right I think the fundamental point of that uh, first part of the book is that uh, Islam Uh, can provide what you might call a freestanding political identity. What I mean by that is that, um, you know, if you take the Irish, uh, Catholicism is a significant part of being Irish. If you take the Poles, Catholicism is a a significant part of being Polish. (laughs) Similarly, the Mexicans.
0: uh,
3: But uh, we don't have any such thing as a Christian political identity that exists uh, freestanding from uh, particular ethnicities like Irish, uh, Polish, Mexican. Whereas in the Islamic case, uh, to a significant extent, you do have that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a sense of, you know, that all Muslims are in the same political boat. Now, of course, I mean, in the real world, and you're very quickly going to sort of encounter ethnic factors that undermine that complicated, etc. I mean, there is that conception there in a way in which I just, I just don't see a conception of, as it were, a pan-ethnic Catholic political identity or a pan-ethnic Christian political identity.
2: So, in, in other words, the, the, the relationship between religion and politics is just that much closer uh, in Islam that it can kind of be planted in any different uh, cultural context.
3: Right, something like that. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But the, but but how do you explain uh, the I guess the different cultural components or the cultural um, tinges of, of of how Islam is practiced in any any given country? So it, it doesn't really affect the politics, or it, it doesn't, or it can be uh, kept separate in some sense.
3: Right. Um, I mean, obviously, the moment you're talking about any particular country, you're talking about a lot of very particular things. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, um, you know, for example, and if you're talking about Boko Haram in northern Nigeria, mm-hmm. um, something that you should, I think, you know, very quickly be talking about, uh, and that the media, oddly enough, doesn't seem to talk about at all, is the link between Boko Haram and a particular ethnic group, the Kanuri ethnic group. And so, I mean, it's no good taking, you know, if you want to do real analysis of what's going on in northern Nigeria, just looking at the Islamic language and pretensions of Boko Haram, you have to also look at the ethnic context. And I think that applies across the board. It's just that there is also something, um, what's the word I want, sort of overarching, in the Islamic case, uh, that this sense of uh, Islamic political identity, which is very clearly at work when, say, um, when, say uh, a Bangladeshi, someone of Bangladeshi descent who lives in the north of England uh, decides that his people are ISIS in Syria and Iraq and goes off and gets killed there. Um, it's not something that makes any sense in ethnic and national terms it makes sense only if there is an overarching political identity of a religious specifically religious kind
2: yeah. some uh, some scholars have even argued that um, you know Islam even though it, it or the jihadist narrative which is fundamentally uh, often against nationalism uh, functions as a kind of nationalism itself right because you can it, it, it goes across borders and and it talks about the global uh, community and the global ummah and those kinds of things. Do you think that's accurate?
3: Right. Well, I mean, if you want to say it functions as a kind of nationalism, and I, I wouldn't uh, be strongly against that, um, uh, but I mean, it's, it's broader than that. It, and it, it, it functions as a kind of solidarity.
0: Right.
3: And solidarity doesn't have to be national, uh, it doesn't have to be religious, it could be something else. I mean, there was a real sense of solidarity among people who in the 1930s went to fight on the Republican side uh, in, in the Spanish Civil War. Um, you know, there are various different ways in which in these kind of communities can be constituted. And um, national, nation, nationalism is one thing and religion is another and, and naturally there are similarities. But I don't think it's a very sort of profound observation mm-hmm. that... Um, Islamism is a bit like nationalism
2: yeah and and, and so your 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 follow up discussion or your in in part two of um, things like values uh, and warfare and divine jealousy um how does that relate to uh, the rest of the conversation in the book
3: right uh, and, I mean that comes out of uh, the point I made earlier that um, in modern times um, outside the west, your culture is under Attack. Not necessarily, I mean, a sort of deliberate attack um, on the part of the West. But simply, you know, it, um, uh, and the processes of modern history are not kind to non-Western cultures. And, uh, you know, they have to adapt uh, as best they can. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of resistance to adaptation. And I think Islam, Islamism provides a language in which you can Think and talk about those kind of issues. What you can adopt, what you can't adopt, how you adopt it, how you present it to yourself when you adopt it. Um I mean, for example, uh, take the matter of adopting Western military methods. I mean, obviously ISIS uh, is fighting with uh, weapons that were if they weren't actually manufactured in the West and uh, were developed in the West and they've adopted a great deal from the West in that sense and they have to be comfortable with that. Um, and you know there are ways in which Islam can make you comfortable with it, but at the same time there are ways in which um, Islam can make you very uncomfortable about adopting should we say the sort of liberal sexual mores of the West.
2: So the, this notion of divine jealousy—can you explain what that means in Islam and, and in your comparative context as well?
3: Right. Uh, yeah, the point I wanted to make there is that um, God really is extraordinarily central to the, you know, the basic structures of Islamic civilization, and. Um, Yeah, just a minute. Let me think. Uh, What would be a a good example to take? Yeah. Yeah, What I want to say is that there are certain domains Mm -hmm. where God is, so to speak, supposed to be in charge in an Islamic perspective. And a very obvious example of that is law. I mean, law is not something that can just be left to people to develop in a purely worldly way without reference to God. Law is something which God imposes on believers and now by contrast there are certain other domains where god is really not very interested for example medicine
0: and
3: you know i mean there's a certain amount of discussion that goes on there because then on the one hand you have the standard medicine of the pre-modern islamic world which is the greek medical tradition in translation On the other hand, you have some pietists who are saying, no, no, we shouldn't have this Greek stuff. Instead, we should uh, find out what kind of medical recommendations the prophet made, and we should follow those. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that whereas um, insisting that the law is God's law is absolutely mainstream uh, in Islamic societies, insisting that medicine should be God's or the prophet's medicine is pretty marginal. Mm -hmm. So there you have a case where uh, divine jealousy is weak, whereas by contrast, in the legal case, it's strong. And it's sort of comparisons like that I was wanting to make, both within Islam and between Islam and uh, other religious traditions.
2: And you don't see it as prevalent uh, prevalent in uh, Hinduism or Catholicism?
3: That's right. And uh, and certainly, I mean, in Catholicism, it's got quite a lot to do with the fact that... um, Christianity starts off not being in control of certain domains and remains not in control of them for you know, a few hundred years. And you know, obvious cases being of politics and um, law, and, you know, with the result that uh, the legal tradition of Christian societies in Europe is either Roman law, a non-Christian secular law, or it's. Uh, some kind of Germanic and common law, um, but again, a non-Christian law. Now, that's very different to the situation in the Islamic world. Not necessarily at grassroots level, that's something else, but certainly in terms of um, what is respectable in the Islamic world, uh, only God's law is really respectable.
2: And then, uh, so you you move on from there to a discussion of uh, fundamentalism, which I I guess is is, is a more... um is a term that more people will recognise. Right. How does um, how do you how do you see that uh, playing out, especially in uh, I guess in relation to the other two parts of your book too, because it seemed um, like it was woven through to some extent too.
3: Right. Okay. I suppose I started off writing the book talking uh, quite happily about Muslim fundamentalism, mm-hmm. uh, the way a lot of people do, and. And then you know, I had to ask myself, what exactly do I mean by fundamentalism? I mean, it's a very muddied word, uh, word and you know, um, so what am I going to mean by it? And I decided what I wanted to mean by it was um, going back to the roots of your religion, taking them very seriously and privileging them against the subsequent tradition. So that was the particular phenomenon that I was concerned with there. And the moment I sort of expressed that clearly to myself, it became obvious that, uh, you know, the people I had been calling Muslim fundamentalists weren't actually pure fundamentalists, that uh, most of them have some degree of respect for the later tradition. Uh, you know, they're certainly privileging the, uh, you know, the early period more than most of their co-religionists, but it's by no means a kind of radical rejection of anything that anyone ever said after the 7th century. Um, It's not really quite like that. You you take people like in Maududi, for example, and there you have one of the major founding figures of what we refer to as Muslim fundamentalism. And yes, he is in some sense someone with a strong fundamentalist tendency. Uh, He really does want to highlight the earliest period of Islam and the earliest sources. But is he trashing everything that's been said ever since? No, he's not.
2: Right. But, uh, so did, from from there, from there, there are individuals, I guess, later commentators from Mao that, um, do dismiss quite a bit of the legal tradition that came after.
3: Yes, certainly you get dismissing um, a lot of the tradition. Mm-hmm. But I mean, typically the people who dismiss uh, all the, say, the Hanafi jurists and so forth, uh, are still quoting Ibn in Timaean, right. who is several centuries after the Prophet, after all. Mm.
2: Um, so, I, I mean, we don't necessarily talk, I mean, we do talk about a Christian fundamentalism, but we don't necessarily talk about a Hindu fundamentalism, aside from, um, I guess, the, you know, a Hindu movement in, in India and stuff like that. So right. What, where do you see those, uh, that, that kind of word being used? Because it, it, it comes out of a Christian context in many ways too. Right?
3: Yes, yeah, absolutely, yes. Okay, And um, first of all, I don't see the Hindutva movement as being in any, in any sense fundamentalist. Right. Um, I mean, they're simply not trying to restore, uh, you know, some original, authentic Hindu law. They're not trying to wipe out everything that's happened in the last 2,000 years or whatever. Uh, And that's simply not the line of business that they're in. Mm. Secondly, though, I've I've heard the line that um, as there couldn't be any such thing as a Hindu fundamentalism. Mm. I think that's simply wrong in that um, if you go back to the 19th century you take Dayanand. He has a very clear fundamentalist notion. Uh, Now, what's in the Vedas That's what we go by. Anything later doesn't have that authority.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You know, some people would say that um, when you talk about Islamic fundamentalism, you're talking about a very specific uh, strand of thinking, right? It's um, that. that, uh, You know, would you? What is the relationship between something like that and Salafism or Wahhabism, or um, you know, people like Sayyid Qutub and, and things like that? Where do you Where do you see your discussion falling?
3: Right. And I think, I mean, the honest truth is it, it's all a bit messy. And, yeah. um, I mean, you have, uh, I mean, Sayyid Qutb is, is maybe closer to being a fundamentalist than the Wahhabis or the Salafis and Maududi um, in the sense that, um, I mean, he's just much less interested um, in the sort of the intervening tradition, he really does want to go back to the original sources. But even he is not, so to speak, dogmatically rejecting um, the original tradition. And if you take, say, the Wahhabis, um, in one sense you can very comfortably, I think, describe them as fundamentalists, in that um, Ibn Abdul Wahhab and his doctrine is about going back to the Quran and the traditions and that's where you find it clearly set out what's politi-, what is polytheism and what it isn't. And that's what we have to go by. And he's not exactly trashing everything in between, but he's not paying much attention to it. But on the other hand, if you take Ibn Abdul Wahhab as a jurist, I mean, he's somebody firmly in the Hanbali tradition uh, of Islamic law. And, you know, various of his works are sort of summaries of Standard textbooks of Humbly Law written in, you know, I don't know, around the, yeah, one of them I think in the 16th century. So then he's not a sort of consistent fundamentalist in the sense of rejecting all those intervening cent- centuries. Mm-hmm. And Salafis, I think it's the same kind of story. You there's a lot they're rejecting, but there are other things that they're holding on to.
2: I mean I guess the the natural follow up question uh, to the argument in the book is um you know we generally talk about mainstream Sunni Islam and then we talk about uh uh you know jihadism or islamism as as being kind of breakaway or sectarian within that group, but your argument seems to suggest that there's something even within mainstream islam that um, at least provides the tools or the uh the soil within which uh, or on which uh these kinds of movements can pop up. So where do you see the... Is that the kind of argument you're making, or would you just draw more closer parallels between, like, mainstream and, and not mainstream?
3: Right. Yeah, I think that is more or less the kind of argument I'm making. And... Okay, let's um, set aside terrorism, yeah. which we're all mesmerized by. <laughs> and, and if you go back to you know, the, the medieval tradition. What is very clear is that a lot of it is talking about what we today would call irregular warfare. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, it does talk about what rulers and their professional armies do, but it also talks about what ordinary Muslims do under certain conditions. And, so, and that's the sort of the legal side of it. And then in terms of precedent role models, um, you go back to the life of the Prophet. And you read the record of his 60 or 70 or 80 uh, military expeditions, the ones he led and the ones he sent out. And what you're reading about most of the time is irregular warfare. He doesn't have a regular army. Every time he wants to send out an expedition, uh, he recruits some people from around town and then appoints a commander and out they go. And, I mean, there are some episodes of assassination that you could... uh, I'm not sure whether we call assassination terrorism or not. I've got a feeling that sort of just idiomatically speaking, we don't quite do that. And there are cases of assassination uh, that um, you could sort of parallel with terrorism. And there are are also, towards the end of his career, uh, there's the odd big battle where he has something much more like an army. But most of what he's doing is irregular warfare with a relatively small numbers of people who, once the expedition is over, go back into their their, their ordinary lives. And that, I think, provides a kind of a precedent, um, if you're like an inspiring precedent for most of what we're seeing at the present day, which is not actually, I would think, and I haven't tried to uh, do the statistics of this, but then I don't think terrorism is what predominates in the military activity of jihadis. Um, what predominates is irregular warfare. And I mean, it turns into terrorism under uh, certain conditions. It would turn into regular armies, professional armies, if they got really lucky under other conditions. But I mean, the, the real heart of it is irregular warfare. And that's something that is, does, I think, resonate with the tradition. There's something there that jihadis can get hold of,
2: right? Where where do you see um, groups like ISIS uh, within within the framework uh, that 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 you're looking at? Because they're you know especially the more kind of uh, fringe practices that they're engaged in, such as beheadings and uh, enslaving Yazidi women and and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. Do you you think they find? um, Because I mean I've heard them uh, cite the Quran and cite. hadith and so on, to make the case for those kinds of practices, but uh, where do you see all that happening?
3: Right, yeah, I mean, I guess um, if you want to take the least cuddly things in the tradition Mm -hmm. um, and make a way of life out of them, you could get something like uh,
0: what ISIS is doing. Um, Yeah, I mean... Mm.
3: Okay. First of all, let me be honest. I haven't really been following ISIS closely because um, yeah. my teaching is back in the Middle Ages this semester, um, you know, so that I'm not really up to date on the details of it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the sense I get is that there's nothing there's nothing I've heard of in terms of their thinking yeah. that is uh, you know completely outside the ballpark of what we've already heard from other groups. Right. You no, know, it's more like it's the the specific uh, tactical and strategic decisions are obviously a bit different.
0: And
3: I mean, you know, what I tend to suspect with ISIS is that um, you know, they they come out of a milieu where the main form of jihad is killing Shiites, mm-hmm. and they must be aware that in PR terms, this doesn't play very well. With large numbers of Muslims still left outside the Muslim world, and they therefore want to have a bit of a fight with the Americans to make them, themselves look better. But I mean, this is not um, you know, a question of doctrine at all, and it's simply the particular adaptations to the circumstances that, and opportunities that you know, they find.
2: And where does the, how important is the caliphate, uh, the notion of the caliphate, um, in, in uh, everything that you've been discussing?
3: Okay, I, it, it really is important mm-hmm. in the sense that um, it's something that is very clearly there in the tradition. You know, There was a caliph in 632 already on the, the day after the prophet died. Right. Um, and it's something that is uh, you know, written up and spelled out in the tradition. Um, so, I mean, it's authentic. And at the same time, it's geopolitically a very attractive idea. If your experience of modern times is being on the wrong side of history. Okay. And this is a, a, a dream wherein the whole Islamic world is united into one single powerful state and something Maududi uh, used to talk about, I think, uh, very eloquently. And, you know, how Isl- the Islamic world could be a superpower united under its, reunited uh, under its caliph. And, I mean, as a geopolitical dream, this is very attractive. So the combination of being authentic in terms of the tradition and having real resonance yeah. in the modern world, I think makes it a, quite a powerful idea. Not everybody goes for it, but uh, quite a lot of people do.
2: Yeah, When they do go for it, it's pretty, it, uh, it's, it's, it's done very passionately. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, thanks for talking to us about your book. Um, well, what, what, uh, what are you working on next? Is, is there ne- another book project in the works? Or?
3: There is one in the works, or actually there are two, and and I'm not sure which of them I'll finish or when I'll finish them or anything like that, but uh, one of them is to look in more elaborately than I've done in the book we've been talking about, at the political style of the prophet. I mean, it's something that um, is quite sort of richly depicted in the sources, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it it really would be worth pulling all that together. And you know, in the book I talk uh, uh, quite a lot about, um, at a certain point, about um, how the Prophet is shown as not just righteous, but also politically savvy. Yeah. And it's that kind of savviness that uh, interests me here. Um, the other thing is uh, much more straightforward. Uh, I'd like to write uh, uh, one volume, History of the Islamic World, um, from then till now. Uh, without footnotes, uh, the kind of thing that um, students could use, a general reader could use. I think this is just um, my way of trying to use all the sort of the ideas and the bits of information and the examples I've accumulated over the decades in my teaching and put them into some kind of form in which I could put them out there.
2: Well, sounds like a great project and we hope to have you on uh, to talk about them at some point. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for joining us and uh,
3: Thank you.